Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Diane. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm a compulsive overeater anorexic bulimic. Hi. Very grateful member of this unbelievable fellowship. Uh, Lucy had asked me to speak, and thank you, Lucy, <clears throat> wherever you are. Um, happy birthday to the birthdays. Welcome to the newcomers, anybody new, anybody visiting, anybody from out of town. I'm profoundly grateful to this program, and um, if the timer could give me 10 minutes, and then 10 minutes, and then 5 and 5, that would be great. Um, Thank you. I am going to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. In thinking about this program, I have my life split into two parts in terms of it. Before I walked into the rooms and after I walked into the rooms. I, the overview of before I walked into the rooms can be done uh, with descriptions. I was moody, I was angry, I was shut down, I always said yes, I had no idea what I felt. I had a lot of friends, accomplishments were very important. I grew up in a small mining town in Quebec and it was very important to me to be in every organization at school. And I had those, we used to in those days put sort of things on our, on our, our sweaters, our school sweaters, and it said every club you were in, and I was in all of them. And if I came your way, it was generally because I was asking you to do something or be involved in something or help with something. And that was how I got seen, and that was how I survived. I was... I am one of five children, number four of five, but I act like the bossy bully number one. And um, I think that's because I was so afraid of not being seen and not being enough and not being okay that I did, did too much. Um, and I still don't know how I feel feeling-wise about my childhood. I can't always tell. I had friends. I had loving parents. My siblings were and still are my best friends. We played together all the time. I loved school. I was the teacher's pet, another way I needed to be seen. And I don't know if I could have told anybody how I felt if they'd asked me. Um, I do remember I one year didn't make the high school soccer team. And I had gone to the tryouts and didn't play well. And I remember when my name wasn't on the list, when everybody runs to see the list of who made the team and I didn't make the team, I think because of my parents and my upbringing and their you know, determination that we always be honest, I could look at the list and say, I didn't play well. I could have played a whole lot better. Other times I played great, but I didn't play well. Oh, no, you've got to be on the team. It's like, I don't need to be on the team. And it was one of those few moments of, like, being congruent with what was going on in front of me. Most of the time, that was not the case. I wanted to be there. I wanted it to be other. I wanted to look other. And that kind of reminds me, um, I have a lot of hair. 
on my head, if you're listening to this. I have a ton of hair. And when I grew up, there was a character on TV called Bozo the Clown. Bozo had hair that went in a pyramid from the top of Bozo's head to Bozo's shoulders. And that's kind of how I feel right now, because I just got a new haircut, and the guy did a new thing that I wasn't planning on. And it looked great for a week after he did the blow dry and the, a curling iron and the two and a half hour hoo-hoo that I've never done in my life. And, and today I washed it myself and it looks horrible. And it just reminded me of, it's now, I just pulled it back because I can't stand it. But it reminds me of all those years when I was called Bozo. I was called Dumbo. I was called all those things as a kid because I was the tallest kid in the class and weighed the most. In those days, they had a throat lozenge thing, and they took your weight, and they wrote it on there. Here's how tall you are, and here's how much you weigh, and here's your name, so everybody can see it. And I was, I've never in my life been happy to see a number or have anybody know the number. And this all added up to, I'm not enough. I'm, I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I don't know enough. I haven't done enough. I don't run fast enough. And um, I didn't know that I felt that way, and I didn't know what I might have done differently. I um, adored my mother and later found out she had struggled with depression probably since before we were born. I, when I was 16, I found her after she'd taken an overdose, which nobody called an overdose. And 18 months later, I was at college and 17, and she killed herself. And that threw my world into, I can't even describe what internal chaos. However, in those days, in the 70s, nobody talked about suicide, nobody talked about feelings, and nobody paid any attention to the family afterwards. It's all very different now, but that was the case back then. So I thought I was crazy. I couldn't focus at school. I, I wanted to not eat because, oh, literally, I remember thinking the next day, oh, maybe now I can diet. Maybe now I won't have an appetite because I always wanted to eat less. I always wanted to be able to stick to a diet, and I never could. And I was devastated, and I went back to school. I finished my undergraduate. I finished my graduate school by myself, got a job, came down here, and um, I discovered that I could, I, oh, I had braces, and the only reason that's important is I have great teeth and they're white. So I thought, I am not going to throw up. It's one way to diet. I'll do diet pills, I'll undereat, but I'm not, uh, not going to get heavy and I'm not going to throw up because darn if I'm going to ruin my teeth. So, I came up with my own chew it and then spit it up plan, which I did for many years, and it worked. Well, I mean, clearly, you have to, like, have an implement or a serviette or a bag handy at all times, but it's manageable. As many of us know, we can be quite devious when it comes to how to manage our disease. So, I did that for years, and um, can't tell you much about my 20s at all except that when I was 27, I heard somebody say, oh my God, I can't lose these last 10 pounds. I'm going to have to go to that Overeaters Anonymous. Didn't know what she was talking about, but I filed it away in that same way many of us have. And um, a year and a half later, when I 
had moved to New York and wanted for a job and had wanted, just wanted to die. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I couldn't stop eating. I was lonely. I had a great job. I was in New York. It didn't matter where I was. I hated myself. And I was 29. And I made a deal with myself. If I don't feel better by the time I'm 30, I'm allowed to kill myself. A lot of my stuff was, I'm allowed. Am I allowed to do this? So I had a plan, and I had collected all the pills that all the doctors that I saw for whatever was wrong with me that nobody could figure out. I had them in a shoebox. And in those days, doctors didn't ask you how you're feeling. They just don't, didn't. So um, six months before I turned 30, I thought, you know, I haven't tried everything. I haven't tried that Overeaters Anonymous thing. And I looked it up in a telephone book and went to my very first meeting on Wednesday, July 8th of 1987, Atlantic Hill Hospital in New York. And I, nobody was talking about food. They were, in fact, talking about their feelings. I didn't know what was going on. I had gone for a run on the way, another of my tactics for losing weight, <laughs> long distance running. I showed up at the meeting at the, at late, because that way I shouldn't have to talk to anybody, and listened to the meeting and couldn't, couldn't, couldn't take it in. I couldn't understand what was going on. I couldn't understand why they were talking about what they had done at work or who had, you know, who they'd spoken to or their parents. I just couldn't understand it. And at the end of the meeting, I left and I went home and I sat on the edge of my bathtub and I burst into tears. I had no idea why. I had, couldn't understand it. I, I couldn't. It was this thing washed over me. And, you know, looking back on it, I believe that's when I realized I wasn't alone with this. I didn't know you were allowed to go to more than once a week meetings. So if you're, if you're listening to this, you can go to as many meetings as you want to. So I waited until the next Wednesday to go back to the same meeting and um, had my last binge in that week. And my current abstinence started on July 14th, 1987. And the reason that's important to me is, first of all, it's half my life now. And it feels like way less than half, interestingly enough, because those disease years left a very heavy imprint. And I will say to um, describe the overview that that those I really had that we don't talk about it so much, but I had a pink cloud of abstinence. I got abstinent, and when I next went back to see the psychopharmacologist who was giving me my meds for my depression. And I saw him two months later. He literally looked at me and said, what happened to you? He could not believe that I was basically bouncing in there. You know, oh, my God, I feel so good. My life is good. He just said, what happened to you? And I said, I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And, you know, hopefully he filed that away for future reference. I'd never said anything about an eating or an eating disorder. I didn't know I had one. I just thought I couldn't, you know, make my food do. I couldn't manage and control and enjoy my food. And, um... That really helped me to realize, to start to see the connection between what I was eating and how I felt. I didn't understand that I was abusing myself with food and I was taking out all my rage on me. In those first two years in particular, I went to some kind of meeting every day. I went to an OA meeting in New York, I went to Al-Anon, or I went to therapy. I um, was told at the very beginning, and to any newcomers, I was told to make three phone calls a day. I suppose now they might be texts, but um, it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful um, 
tradition that people started years ago, and I got a phone call yesterday from a woman who hadn't, who was new to the program and hadn't made an outreach call before. And she said, I don't, I, I, they told me to make a phone call, and I'm making a phone call, but I don't know what to say. And I said, you don't have to say anything. I'll ask you, how are you doing? How was your day? What's going on? And, you know, half an hour later, oh, my God, half an hour? What did we talk about for half an hour? I said, doesn't matter. Just try and do this three times a day. And generally, if the person, even if the person's a newcomer like you, you'll figure it out. But if they're not a newcomer, you know, you'll be really fine. And, you know, that reminded me. It took me back to those days when I had that phone list and I called those people and they helped me and they reminded me that I wasn't alone. My first year of <laughs> my first year of program was about going to meetings and food. What am I going to eat? I got a, took me 6 months to get a sponsor because I was too afraid that somebody would say no, so I didn't ask anybody. And if again, if you're new or don't have a sponsor, I suggest you just ask anyway because um, it made all the difference in the world. I didn't call her much. I'm not a big caller of sponsors. I would be good if I, still, 30 odd years later, but I know they're there and I've always had one. And um, I've worked the steps and I've followed the program. When I came in, we didn't, we had the AA big book and that's what we used and the AA 12 and 12 and that's what we used and I'm really grateful for that. My first year was about going to meetings, having a sponsor, and the food. And I will say, I know there are various groups around here who do it, but we started on Sunday night. There was an anorexic bulimic meeting on West 69th Street in New York. And we, group of us, eight of us, had dinner every Sunday night after the meeting for five years. Same restaurant, same table. And, you know, they knew everybody what was gonna, who was going to have what, because I don't know about you, but a lot of us were rigid in those days. It's like, I'm having this and I'm having this. And it was incredibly helpful because that was where I learned to talk about the mundane stuff of life that I didn't know it was okay to talk about. You know, how I felt when somebody said something to me on the street or at work. What I had a dream about to do in my life because I didn't know I was, quote, allowed to have those things. I was brought up in a very um, frugal Scots Presbyterian polite home where nobody had any high feelings and nobody had any low feelings. And... Um, and one day my mother kills herself. I don't know what would have happened had, had things been different. I, I think um, so many cases of so many things have to do with people not having access to feelings or being able to express them. That was certainly my experience. Um, my second year, I discovered my anger. I had no idea I was angry. Because I was so obsessed with food for the first year, it took over everything and staying abstinent and making my phone calls. And um, I, oh my God, here's how angry I was. I walked down the street and I imagined taking a razor blade to people's faces and carving a big X on them. That got me through many, many days. I imagined shooting people, and that's so not who I am, and in Canada, it's really, like, not even allowed, never seen one, but, you know, it was, I mean, I, that, that was how I backed into understanding that I was angry, and it had nothing to do with the person who I was actively razoring, because they didn't know, but, but what it did do was help me identify feelings, that's why I talk about it, because... I, I, in my apartment, I screamed into towels, I ripped things, I broke things. I did not know what to do with my anger. First of all, I was shocked that I had any because I was the polite girl, but I didn't know what to do with it. And um, 
And I was afraid that something would happen to me if I expressed it. And that was never the case because we were too polite. But it really helped me to talk about it. I'm so angry I don't know what to do. And um, again, the program gave me a place to go with that. And I did not believe in a higher power, which came started to come in in my second year because I, if there was God, my mother wouldn't have killed herself, I wouldn't have been so alone, etc., etc., etc. Everybody has a story. That's one thing I learned in here. Everybody has a story. And um, my sponsor asked me, I was going out of town and I was um, afraid that I wouldn't be able to be absent and traveling. And she said, can you ask God for help and trust that just for today, with God's help, you can be abstinent. Well, yeah, but just for today. Let's get this straight. I'm not going to live like this forever, just for today. And so I, was, I traveled. I got, did all the things that were scary for me abstinently. Got through the day. How is everything? Great. So she said the next time something happened, I had a meeting I was afraid of. Could you just, just, for, just for this meeting trust that everything will be okay? Well, yeah, but just for the meeting, you know, just for the meeting, I'll trust God that everything will be okay. And, you know, can you, I went on a date. I used to go on dates with bagels in my purse because I'd go in the bathroom and eat because I was too anxious to actually be present anywhere. And bagels are very portable. But I asked God if I could, you know, could you help me not take bagels on the date? Okay, just for today, not take bagels on the date. Okay, didn't take the bagels on the date, survived. So the reason I say this is because this happened all the time. Could you help me walk to the corner? Could you help me, like, not hate, you know, how my hair looks today? Could you help me with this, help me with that? So one by one, as my sponsor used to say, little by slowly, each, if you think of those old, we used to make paper chains. And if you think of a chain, it was like one link at a time. And those links of trust just this once, trust just this once, trust just this once, trust just this once, turned into a long chain of trust, which sort of miraculously, quietly, silently turned into faith. Because every single time that I turn it over, it's taken care of, I'm taken care of, or if things aren't happening in the way I think they should, they inevitably end up happening better than I could imagine. That's one of the many ways that this program has been so helpful. Even with that belief in faith, it was still hard for me to trust God. Why should I trust God? What am I going to do with it? Who is this entity? So I'm going to read from um, Voices of Recovery, which I'm very grateful for. Um, today is February 22nd, and the quote at the top is, OA doesn't tell us we have to believe in God, only that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And that's really important to me, because this program does not tell us what to do, it gives us suggestions. And I have had to enlarge my God, I've had to enlarge my program, I've had to enlarge my spirituality. I imagine... There's a giant bell up in the sky with a big long rope on it and God's at the other up at the top and I just yank on the rope when I want help. And, you know, I can hang on to that rope and it'll support me. And that's how it works for me. I have many images, but that's one of them. And I remember years ago somebody was saying, I can't find God, I can't find God. And, and they were told, you know, take yourself mentally into the desert for three weeks every day. Go to, find a space and go and be there and you'll find him or her whatever your God is. I started meditation not because I wanted to, but because my sponsor gave me books and cassette tapes 
a long time ago, and um, all sorts of other things. And she finally took me to a meditation workshop in July 3rd, 19, in 2003. And I learned a meditation format that I've used every day since then. And it has changed my life right after coming in program, working the steps, and daily meditation. Huge change. I have had um, depression, huge depression issues myself, suicidality issues, but um, God has always been there, and the lower I go, the more I have to lean on God. I also had to learn with feeling vulnerable um, and scared. Those two often went together because I was so used to having all my armor on and out in front of me that did not have it. I used to talk about feeling like a piece of chicken without skin running down the street and that everything seared me. Um, or I suppose tofu today, you could say. But um, I also, you know, nothing, nothing got to me. You know, I didn't cry for years after my mother's suicide. I cried once I came into the program, then I cried all the time because I was finally accessing all these corners of myself that I couldn't have. There was used to be a TV show called Lassie about a dog, this black and white collie. And when I got abstinent and I turned on the TV and Lassie was on, I burst into tears. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I'm, you know, 32 and I'm crying at Lassie. You know what? And nobody cares. That's the other thing I learned. Nobody cares, frankly. Nobody ever cared. But I thought they cared. Now I get that they don't care and it's fine. I can, you know, wear what I want, show up in the world, be in the world. I also um, was taught to be of service. And um, I saw a great quote about wanting to be of service and live a useful and happy life. And there's something about that that just makes me want to cry because I have spent a long time over the years wanting to be dead, in program, out of program. And, you know, the idea that I can be of service and it's enough, that I can live a useful and happy life and it's enough. I um, had a, um, a fall and a resultant brain injury two and a half years ago. And the reason I say that is because it totally changed my life it wasn't in my plan and I had a plan for my life and that wasn't in it and um, it it uh, put me on a different path than I've been on and I have um, had to do a lot of work to take care of myself and uh, a lot of issues have come up with literally processing and uh, fogginess and all sorts of other things and the reason I mention that is because I think without program, I wouldn't have made it because I felt so hopeless and so different and so lost uh, for months at a time and dizzy and all sorts of other things. It forced me to go deeper into my spirituality. I have spent hours in silence talking to God, listening to God. I had a day where I decided that I was meant to listen to all of Beethoven's symphonies in a row, and I did that, and it was wonderful. And, you know, I, I never used to say, as my friends have since told me, I never used to say no to anything. And I had to learn to, I had to learn to say no because I kept hitting a wall of energy, and by three or four in the afternoon, I couldn't think straight, and I couldn't focus, and I had to go and take a break. And so... Um, one of my heroes is a, is a singer, and he was doing a show on Broadway, and I've followed him since I was 16 years old, and um, somebody said, you know, let's go, let's go get tickets. I can't do it. 
you know, what do you mean you can't do it? You've nev- you never say you can't do anything. I can't do it. And it was interesting because for so many years I tried to learn how to say no, but in this case I was forced to learn to take care of myself in a very different way. Because for me it was one thing if I could have done it and to choose not to was actually harder than I couldn't do it. And um, the program has taught me to show up for that. I um, also am learning to allow people closer and get closer to people. I had I was very happy being single. Matter of fact, my idea of Saturday night was home with a big bowl of popcorn, thinking about maybe having a date sometime in the future and watching an old movie. That was heaven to me. Much better than being on the date, actually. Because I didn't know how. I didn't know how to connect. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know who I was. All of those things I learned in the program. And um, I... Uh, was working on a project. I, I also will say I made a lot of changes in program, in abstinence, with the help of the program. I came in and I started a career right after graduate school. Three weeks into it, I hated it. I hated it. I'd gone to all this, you know, struggle to learn all this stuff and do this thing. I'm in the job three weeks in. I hate it, and I think, it must be me. It must be me. Everybody else loves it. Something's wrong with me. Stayed there for seven years until I got offered a job in New York, and there I was able to change careers. Really tough. A lot of showing up and rejection and showing up and showing up, but I did it anyway because the program taught me to show up. The program taught me to put it out. The program taught me to ask for help. And I made this change, and I've loved this career. And in my 40s, I um, was working on a pro- – well, in my, sorry, long before that, when I was 30, yes, 30 young, I met – somebody on a movie, and seven years later, we had a date, and um, I had no intention, well, I mean, he was married at the time, and I was living with somebody, so it wasn't, like, easy, and then everything changed, and all of a sudden, I ran into him, and he asked me to have dinner, and I was, A, horrified, and B, petrified, but we had dinner, and then, because I hadn't been to Al-Anon yet, I moved in, so, so I'm now married to him, but I had no intention of getting married, I Honey, I love you, but I do love being single. And um, I, if you had said, you're going to you know, be in your mid-40s and marry somebody 30 years older than you, I would say, I don't think so. But that's exactly what happened. His, his uncle, who was 94, walked him down the aisle and um, <laughs> tells you where we are. And now he's just about that age. And you know what? I get to show up and I get to be of service. And because I don't think of him as old, I treat him like he's my age because he still works every day and he's in the gym and he's in the pool and he travels and, you know, he's amazing. And, you know, it's interesting because the program has taught me to show up for me. The program has taught me to do my best to be a good wife. I am not a great wife because I am very happy on an island by myself with that bowl of popcorn in the movie thinking about being in life. To actually be in life has a lot of consequences, even if it's in my feelings. You know, showing up for people, being disappointed, having to say no, feeling my feelings. And I have learned in this program that that's all part of being alive. I thought I could get through life by being perfect. I really did. And that's not, I've discovered that that's not life. And I have a sponsor now who has helped me work the program and shown up for me and uh, in my bad head days recently, a while ago, I said, you know, we were meant to meet, and I said, I, I can't do it. I can't get there. And she said, then I'll come to you. 
to her, it was no big deal. To me, it was monumental that people go, we go out of our way for each other in this program. We try and help people. I have a sponsee here who somehow has a sponsee in Stockholm, in Sweden, and I was there last summer and I went and met with a sponsor, my grand sponsee. And it was, you know, she, they live, by the way, you know, people live on podcasts from LA. And I will say that it's taken me 20 years to adjust to LA because I'm an Easterner at heart. And um, I will say that the meetings out here are extraordinary, both in this program and others. And I will say that my OA sponsor made me go to Al-Anon because she said, you're picking up food over people, places, and things. And I was annoyed, of course, because that's my first <laughs> response to almost anything. But I went, and it re not only did it help my food, it really helped my life because it's a different take on so many of the things that got me in here. And um, that's really helped me with sponsees because I say to sponsees, you need to be going to Al-Anon if, if you want me to work with you because I want to focus on this program when we speak. I don't want to hear about all that other stuff. Go over there and deal with it. Let's talk about God and this. How are you getting closer to God? We say in the steps, the purpose of these steps is for you to find a higher power. It's the result of working these steps. It's not a result. It's the result. And, you know, I want people to know that this program exists and that it's life-changing and life-saving. One of those women who was at dinner with us in 1987 uh, committed suicide 10 years ago and left three young children, and I was, I was with her all the way along the journey. I was actually her best friend, which brought up a whole other level of what could I have done, why didn't I see. But what I will say is, although she stayed sober for 26 years, she could not stop throwing up. She couldn't stop. So for people who don't know anything about that side of her, you know, oh my God, how did she kill herself? Why did she kill herself? When you're one of us, you understand. You can understand or imagine, at least, what might, what might have happened to bring it to that. And that has been a huge reminder for me. And um, I know this program is deadly because I've heard of many deaths over the years. And I don't take it lightly. And I have learned that, as it says in our literature, I can do anything for today. I can do anything. I can get through it. I can make phone calls. If I have to, I was in bed super early the other night and because um, I didn't want to be anywhere else. And, you know, I took my book, preferred thing for me to have in bed, and um, that was that, you know. I just learned that the program is there. I listened to speakers. I've heard the most amazing speakers that really helped me. Ten minutes of a great speaker can really turn me around. And I also um, want to say that I'm really proud of how these programs have kept going and how the fellowship has kept going. In the olden days, there was nothing called sober eating, and now there, is, there are groups that do sober eating. There are groups all over the world. There's fellowship all over the world. This program continues, and to me, it's been called the, the greatest social movement of the 20th century, and I certainly agree with that, and I'm profoundly grateful to the founders of AA who started this, because I was um, reading, I'm reading the big book out loud, which is part of my 
brain recovery, which I've never, I've read it. I've read it many times. I hadn't read the fourth edition before, so now I'm reading the fourth edition out loud. And I have to, have to, my sponsor direction is to underline a sentence on every page that speaks to me. And I have to say, after having read a big book many, 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 many times cover to cover, it's different reading it out loud. It's different from, I read it in the mirror. Um, It's different reading it in a meeting. It just, I remember very well what I read every day because I heard it. And, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that even after years in the program, we learn new things of being. I was at the the OA birthday party this um, year, last month, and I have to say it was so overwhelming to see all these people from all over the world and all these talks, and we can access them and hear them. People bring their recovery. People had the most amazing stories to share and topics. And, you know, there's uh, on the wall right straight in front of me in this room now, there's a little poster that says, Life is Beautiful. And before I came into these rooms, life was not beautiful. Life was to be endured, and would it please be over someday soon? And now I really believe that life is beautiful, and uh, God is in charge of what happens in the rest of it. And I have been taught to do my best to live my life with grace and dignity, and the program has taught me to do that to the best of my ability. Thank you very much for listening.